Okay, if you'll take out your insert, uh, insert that says Unfolding Grace on the front. Open up to the in, inside where you'll see the title, Land Vomit. And someone asked me before the service if uh, I came up with that on my own. I said, I did not. That's actually the Scripture's exact phrase in Leviticus 18 about the land vomiting out of people. And I, was, I woke up this morning realizing I'm, I was not going to use the illustration I was going to use, opening. But suffice it to say, let me just say, if you're a parent and you have kids, you know what the word vomit is. And you've seen it in lots of different places. And it always indicates something is wrong. And it will just come out whenever. It's not like kids are, you know, they're just not lining up. Anyway, so I'm starting to give the illustration. Never mind. Okay. Something is wrong. We were turning where we left off in May. We were working in 2022 through the sort of the large sweep of the Old Testament, sort of the main themes and sort of high level of what's happening in the Old Testament. And then we took a break for several weeks to jump into the Psalms. Now we're coming back out of that into the Old Testament. We'll be there for a few more weeks, and then we're going to dive into the book of Revelation. So we're taking a top-level view of some things. Sometimes I say we take a 5,000-foot view, sort of the aerial view. This is really like the space shuttle view of things, like major geographical features only, and then one theme, one application point. And so we're going to cover, really, a good portion of the Old Testament historical books and the prophets all at one time. But this is really unto helping us become better Bible readers, understanding what is the work of God? What is the work of the faithful God in history with his people? How does he express himself? How does he pursue us even in our, unfaith- in our faithlessness? And that is the main theme we see in, in all the stuff we're covering this morning. I put it in your insert. That the failure of God's people actually, actually highlights the faithfulness of God's promises. The failure of God's people, even in our own life, highlights the faithfulness of God's promises and His faithfulness to us. So sometimes we are inclined just to turn away from our failure and not look at it and not acknowledge its existence. We don't want to confess our sin, whatever. But the good news is that very failure is a place where God shows Himself faithful and shows His promises to be true. Uh, We are... So where we are, if you remember where we left off in May, is uh, the, the kingship has been established with David and then Solomon. But, but getting a little running start to that, God calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you and those who come after you. Uh, and then he, they, they travel for a while. There's a famine. They go to Egypt for food. But over time, they become enslaved as a people in Egypt. And then God raises up Moses and says, I'm going to use you to call the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he calls them out of Egypt. He leads them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues. And you know all that. And they go into the, the wilderness and they're preparing to go into this place called Canaan or the Promised Land. But when they're in the wilderness, God says, I'm not just calling you out of slavery. I'm not just giving you a place. I'm giving you a calling in this world. I'm giving you a commission, a calling in this world, and that commission, that calling is to be a light to the nations, a light to the nations. In Exodus 19, the Lord says, uh, 19 verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests represented uh, the people to God, but God to the people. So the role of Israel was to be representatives of God in this earth. And so if we zoom out, what we see there is that God is calling Israel to be a contrast society. He's going to put them as a nation in the midst of all the other nations to be a living embodiment, a living picture of what life could be like with Yahweh as the center of worship. And flowing out of that worship of God in the middle is a, is a community of justice and love and hospitality and kindness and a fervent love for each other. They're supposed to just a pulsating center in the midst of all the nations. That's the, that's the intention, what the Bible calls shalom. You are to be a people of shalom, which is wholeness in a broken world. Now, not perfect, but substantial shalom in a broken world. Again, centered around the worship of Yahweh. And God says, I'm raising you up to be a light for the nations. That's the same language, by the way, he picks up and and gives to us in the New Testament. We are called to be a light to the nations. Now, not one simple geographical nation like Israel was in the Old Testament, but dispersed everywhere in all countries. And that's why we pray for, that's why Daryl prayed for the unreached people group of the day. We're praying that God would show himself there so they may be part of this light to the nations too. And everywhere, by God's grace and by his spirit, living as a contrast society. Now, it's not in the Old Testament like there wouldn't be any problems. That's not what the blessing of God was, that there will be no problems. There would be military threats. There would be economic woes. There would be food supply shortages. It's not that there would be no problem, but that they, they would have somewhere to go. They would have problems like, just like all the other nations. But when all the other nations had problems, what would they do? They would practice all kinds of idolatry or they would fall into self-reliance. They would weep and wail. And God said, when you have problems, here's what I want you to do. Call on me. You depend on me. And you call out to me. And I will deliver you. And in that way of calling on me in distress, you will also be a contrast society in the midst of all the nations. And I'm going to give you leaders, eventually kings, who are supposed to embody and foreshadow this ultimate king who's going to come through you. This ultimate anointed messianic king who will come from your line and he will come and he will begin the restoration of all things. This is, of course, Jesus, right? Uh, this, this ultimate king who is to come. So the, the vision was Israel was called to be this light, this foretaste of the way that the kingdom of God could be, and they were going to be faithful. And then from one of them was going to come and everything they were pointing to, he would embody and bring the whole world into this wholeness. But then there's a warning to Israel, and it's this. You're leaving a land in Egypt full of all kinds of idolatry and problems. You're going into this land called Canaan full of all kinds of idolatry and problems. All these customs that are destructive to your soul and your calling. If you embrace the customs of the people, either from where you came from or where you're going, you will then abdicate your calling as a contrast society. You'll abdicate your calling as a light to the nations because there won't be any distinction between you and the nations. There won't be any true worship of me and no life emanating from that worship. You'll just be like all the other nations sharing in the custom of the nations. And so this, we're going to look first at Leviticus 18 
And this is more like a, a, a high-level overview class. We don't, we're not going to dig into one text like we often do. What leads up to this, this is God speaking to them right before they go into the promised land. He gives this whole list of practices both in Egypt and in Canaan where they're going, of just lists of things of, uh, of all kinds of idolatry that end up eventually in like twisted sexual practices, including incest, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, temple prostitution, the whole mix. And then here's how he concludes at Leviticus 18. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, uh, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when, and when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Vomit, vomit, vomit. There it is, right? So I'm, this is not my words. It's God using uh, vibrant, let's say, language to get the attention of the people. Centuries before this, when he called Abraham, we mentioned this months ago, Genesis 15, he said, I'm going to bring you back to this place, but not yet, because this weird phrase, the, uh, the sins of the Ammonites are not yet complete. I know we're deep in the weeds of biblical history here. Some eyes are glazing over, but just hang with me. Um, the, the sins of the Ammonites are not complete, but when they're complete, I'll bring you back there. And by the time, over time, you realize, oh, what he's saying is that the land is being um, defiled and becoming unclean because of what the Ammonites are doing. And it's like toxins are building up in the stomach. And right now, it's going to blow, right? They're going to blah, it's going to go out. And uh, what the Ammonites were doing specifically, it was problematic, lots of things, but they were worshiping the god Molech to whom they were sacrificing their children. And the Lord says, this is specifically odious to me. And here God's saying, I, I'm about to vom- the land's about to vomit them out, and I'm going to use you, Israel, as, as the means of doing that. But you're not that special. In fact, if you go into the land and practice the same customs that they do, the land will vomit you out as well. As well. Now, the Lord's communicating to us here, I am patient. I've given the Ammonites hundreds of years, hundreds of years. But don't mistake my patience for inaction. I'm patient. First thing we see here in learning from the decline and fall of Israel is that God's warnings do not fail, even if he is slow in bringing things about. God's warnings do not fail, even if he is slow in bringing things about. We don't know why God is so, I don't know why God is so patient in judgment. It would be just for him to bring judgment immediately. But he's patient. And I've often wondered if it's just kind of like because of how God is. 
What's, what God's nature is? What's he like? Let me ask you a question. In your mind, is God a happy God? Is he happy? Is he happy? Fundamentally, I would say, if you think of God as an unhappy God, I have good news. You're wrong. <laughs> God is in himself delighted. Theologians would call it mutual delight in the persons of the Trinity. The Father is delighted and happy in the Son and the Spirit. The Son is happy and delighted in the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is happy and delighted in the Father and the Son. In the three and one, one and three Trinity, this is a happy God. He delights. He is the center of God is delight and joy. And I think it's important for us to know that. We might just stop there and say, do you actually believe that? Do we actually believe that God is a happy God? Maybe uh, something for reflection. And if God is a happy God, what does that mean about me? Like, am, am I joyful? Okay, that's a different sermon. But what this means uh, is that judgment, and follow me here, judgment is not a primary aspect of God's character. It is a secondary aspect of God's character. Judgment is only natural to God because sin is in this world. With no sin, there would be no judgment. God judges because there's sin, but judgment is effect of a primary character of God, namely his love. Judgment and follow, I mean, this is, I know this is hard for some of us here to get, and we, every time we hear the word judgment, we recoil, and if you're visiting, like I just need you to know, we don't preach on this all the time, only when it comes up, but we're talking like about a lot of faithless people here. Um, Judgment is derivative of the fact that God is just and loving and loves his creation, and it's reflected in the sermon title, Land Vomit, okay? Uh, you think about what, is a, what happens when a body vomits something out. Well, often it's because something toxic has gone into it. Like a piece of bad fish, whoop, out it comes. I, had a, I told the first service, I had one of my old mentors was an ex- extreme personality, and he read that a little, drinking a little olive oil was good for you. I don't know. So at lunch, I was at his house for lunch. I don't know how much he drank, but it was more. He's like, do you want some? I'm like, you're going to drink that? He drank. It like bounced out of his stomach. Like, boom. Like just as, why? He got turned from the table, which I was thankful. Uh, and it's like, why? Because it's, it's not natural for your body to drink that much olive oil one time, apparently. At least for Larry Glenn in 1991, it wasn't this. Um, uh, sometimes Larry listens to these sermons. So shout out to you, Larry, if you ever listen to this sermon. You did that, and you know it. Uh, it's a, it was a, we're not created for that. It's unnatural. It's a toxin in our system to do that. We drink it down, and the body's like, no. Why does the land vomit out that kind of twisting sin? Because it's not natural to creation for that to be the case. That's what God is communicating. It's God's love for creation that drives out sin out of creation. So judgment and removing and cutting off sin, which is, called, which is what judgment is, it's God's intention to heal his creation. Just like vomiting is unto healing the body, judgment is unto healing creation. So as an aside, that's why over time walking with Jesus, though we kind of in retrograde so much on this, the commands of God, the commands of God over time can seem less like burdensome and weighty because we begin to see them as, oh, 
this is the secret source. This is the secret truth of what I'm really made for. What I'm natural, in my created order, in my created state made for. I know we're living in a broken world, but I'm actually, I'm actually created to honor other people. It's not a burden. We're created to be faithful to our spouses. That's not a burden. We're created to be generous. That's not a burden. So if we see the, the commands of God as this wait, I just think we're just missing it. That is, it's the secret wisdom of what we're really made for. Uh, there, now I know that we can add human laws on there that weighed us down. That's a different story. But the, the commands of God. We're, command, we're, we're created uh, to value the property of others. We're created to honor authority, honor our parents. We're created to honor our children. We're created for these things. And he, but he warns then, if you do what the Canaanites did, you will suffer the same fate. It's no special dispensation. And so the whole history, Joshua judges 1st 2nd Samuel, 1st 2nd Kings, 1st 2nd Chronicles, is about this question. Is Israel going to be faithful to Yahweh until the Messiah comes, or is it not? Is Israel going to be faithful, especially the kings? And then God sends prophets to be sort of like covenant watchdogs to keep calling them back to repentance. And normally they're talking to the kings because it's like, as the kings go, so go the people. As the leaders go, so go the people in Israel. And that's, that's often the case in all leadership. As leaders go, so go the people. We know that when denominations decline and die, what happens first is the seminaries decline and die, and there's a theological rot, and then the professors, and then the pastors, and then the, the churches fade away, and they, they decline and die. It may be the same for government leaders, depending on the government. Now, I was thinking about this. In America, you vote people in, so it's kind of like... The, whoever the person is is actually a reflection of the people, not vice versa. But I don't know. This really should be a, an awareness of like, what is the leadership in God's people like? What is the leadership in, in the home like? Okay. Now, I'm going to sh- cut to the end here. Eventually, the land does vomit them out. And God uses both the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire as the means of driving them out. If they had repented, like the prophet said, he would not have done that. Now, the Messiah is going to come from them either way. But even though he told them this is going to happen, even though he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and said, my warning is true, even though I'm slow in bringing it about, my warnings are real, my warnings are real. When judgment does come, a lot of the people, especially in Jeremiah, say, how could this happen? We're so surprised. When for 600 years he'd been saying, don't, don't. If you adopt the customs, I'm going to drive you out. If you adopt the customs, I'm going to drive you out. Still today, friends, God's words of warning endure, even if he is slow in bringing things about. And we ought not mistake his slowness for inaction. Let me read to you a sobering passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. In the conclusion of 2 Peter, Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
from the human side, the picture is like we understand God to desire all to come to repentance, many to come to repentance. Therefore, that's why he hasn't wrapped things up yet. He is patient. doesn't mean he's inactive. So let's look at the, the history here. The, we're going to do a flyby, space shuttle flyby of the history of Israel. If you turn on the back of your insert, I've got a, a timeline and a list of kings. What's not on the timeline is about 1400 B.C. They come into the land. Joshua leads them into the land. And then David becomes king. And we think, oh, David's this great king. He's supposed to be like the Messiah. And we get little signs of concern, right? Remember the whole David and Bathsheba thing. That's problematic, deeply problematic. Okay, maybe he kind of recovers from that. And on his deathbed, we think it's going to be great, and there's another concern because he says to Solomon, his son, Solomon, I'm about to die. I want you to be faithful to the Lord. And then I want you to kill a couple of my political enemies. Like David, even in the most faithful king, there's unfaithfulness that's lurking. And Solomon reigns for a while and does well, and then he begins to distrust Yahweh, that that Yahweh will protect and provide for Israel. And then he takes a wife of a political ally to to multiply wives to himself, not just one, not just two, like 300, and then 600 girlfriends, right, for political alliances, so he doesn't have to trust in Yahweh alone. And then he, he incorporates their gods into Israel and begins to worship them. Solomon does not end well. In fact, in the very end, to, to fund his own building projects, he conscripts some of his own people into slave labor and enslaves them to build stuff for him. The Bible takes care to defame almost every one of the heroes that we would make into heroes. Then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam who is worse than Solomon and the people hate him so much they rebel and there's a a rebellion uh, led by Jeroboam and the nation, 80 years after it's founded with David, the kingship splits between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, the southern kingdom is called Judah and the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are sort of like these parallel versions of the kings, like just jumping back and forth. They're supposed to be all God's people. They're divided, and then those books assess the faithfulness of them. And so let me just look at a, a, the kings. Let's just run through here. I put in your, your insert here, red, green, and gray. Red are the faithless kings. Green are the faithful-ish kings. There's only really one faithful king all the way through. And gray is a mixture. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, he builds two other temples. God said, I want to build a temple in Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going to build one in two other places. And in those temples, I'm going to put golden calves so we can worship Yahweh with golden calves. Now, the reader would say, hold on a second. Didn't that go very badly for Israel when they used the golden calf thing before? Answer, it sure did. But Jeroboam doesn't care. He just puts two golden calves, and they're going to worship Yahweh through the golden calves. God is not thrilled with that. His son Nadab, uh, here's the summary of Nadab, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This becomes the summary statement of these, and yet God was patient. Basha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God was patient. Elah, Zimri, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Omri, you might probably never heard of Omri. Secular sources in the ancient Near East would say Omri was the most powerful king in the history of Israel. One of the most powerful kings in the ancient Near East. He had the most land, the most trade power, the most political alliances, and the Bible mentions none of it. 
because it doesn't care. It only cares if Omri was faithful and said, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab, real piece of work, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they make Baal worship the official religion of the northern kingdom. It's so odious in God's knows that he sends Elijah and Elisha. That's where the Elijah and Elisha prophets come and prophesy against Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab responds by trying to have him killed. doesn't work. Ahab's demise comes eventually. Ahaziah, Joth- Jotham did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehu, one dull spot, not a bright spot, but not a pitch black terrible spot, a dull spot, he raises up and he does away with some of the idolatry. But then not the rest, and he goes on this murderous killing spree where he, he, he just it's crazy. Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam, Zechariah, Shalom, Manam, Manam, Pekahiah, Pekah, Hosea did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The northern kingdom is O for 20. God has had enough after 200 years, and the northern kingdom, the land, vomits them out through the instrumental means of the Assyrian Empire, which rushes down upon them and wipes them away. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah was much more faithful. And now, it's not hard to be much more faithful than the northern kingdom, which was over 20. Rehoboam, Abijam, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Asa, I put him here in green like a good king. Uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat, they did stop some idol worship, but one of, the, one of the refrains for all these kings is they did not tear down the high places. The high places were the places of pagan worship. Now, you can understand, if you're a king, why you wouldn't want to do that? Because the people get upset, and maybe you're covering your bases in case Yahweh doesn't come through. Maybe we'll keep this over here on the side. Jehoram, Ahaziah, Athaliah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, they did some good things, did not tear down the high places. Ahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's one brighter spot, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. And so he he is king when the northern kingdom ends. Assyria has come in and wiped away the northern kingdom. This is the massive army most powerful army in the world at the time. They come sweeping down out of the north. They're surrounding Jerusalem. And, and uh, Hezekiah does what the king should have done. He spreads the scroll of the law before the Lord, and he calls out for rescue. And God says, okay, I'll do that. Rescues the people. That's what leaders are called to do. It's what pastors are called to do. It's what parents are called to do on behalf of their families. We call out for the Lord to step in and deliver. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge our history of faithful, faithlessness and plead for God to be faithful. That's what Hezekiah does. And so you might think, man, Hezekiah, he was a good dude. I bet he had a great son. I bet his son was probably the best king in the history of Israel. His son Manasseh was actually the worst king in the history of Judah. Manasseh is so bad that he's the reason that the text gives for the eventual judgment, even though it didn't come for a while. Manasseh worships idols. He builds an idol altar in the temple of God and sacrifices his own child. This is not a good dude. Ammon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now there's one king better than all the rest. 
His name is Josiah. Character-wise, better than King David. Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old. I don't even have a category for this. Um, maybe it's a childlike faith. He finds a book of the law, would be the, what we would call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in the temple. It was stuffed away. It hadn't been read for years, right? So it's like it's hard for us to get our head around this because we read the Old Testament in such compressed action. We're like, didn't you just read the Bible all the time in the Old Testament? Answer, no. It would be like places in Europe today that have a cathedral, like this great church building that the gospel hasn't been preached there for 300 years. People go in there. You could read from the Bible. They're like, well, we've never heard this before. That's what was going on in Josiah's day. So he hears somebody reading this scroll they found in a box, and he's like, wait, what's that? Read that again. And they read it, and he repents. And then he leads the nation in repentance and restoration. But it's too little too late. The ship has already sailed. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, all did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, I sought to find one spot in this whole narrative where where it's compressed as we could get. And here's God's summary of his people to this point. This is weighty. It's a little bit long, but I ask you just to listen as I read from 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 7. So this is after Assyria carries off the northern kingdom. Before they've carried off Judah, before the Babylonians carry off Judah, but it's a sign that things are bad. Verse 7, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and every, under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols, and they became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made for themselves metal images of two calves. That's in the two temples that I mentioned. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced, and the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, including Judah, and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. 
It's weighty. It's weighty. I get that. High places again. High places were places of pagan worship. A couple reference points. Uh, Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. He was the god of uh, rain. And if you're an agricultural community, you can see why you want to worship the god of rain. So he'll send rain. The Asherah and Asherim. Uh, Asherah was the goddess of fertility. She was worshipped through temple prostitution. That is exactly what it sounds like. There were temple prostitutes who functioned as worship, uh, fertility rites. It's far, far afield from God's design for humanity. But the fear of not having, the fear of going hungry, the fear of... Uh, of having lack, the fear of not having power, led the people, instead of calling out to Yahweh to enter into these other sort of arrangements, Molech was another chief god of power. And the way you worshiped Molech was to give your children to Molech. You could do that by simply dedicating your child to Molech, promising they would serve Molech all the days of their life, or branding them, or if you want to be really serious, sacrificing your own children. It's bizarre and far afield for us. I mean, we would never sacrifice our own children in our culture to promote our own security and ease and comfort of life, except we have an abortion industry. Like, so these, these things, we would, never, we would never sacrifice our children to get ahead economically, except we all routinely work for years and years and years and then turn around and our kids are 18, 20, 25 and gone out of our house and we've missed them completely, right? We're more sophisticated now, but we often do the same thing. Uh, faithlessness is not that creative. It's just very persistent. Uh, none of these kings, Josiah alone, but actually Josiah was a bad military leader too. <laughs> he got them all killed by Egypt. So stupid what he did. But anyway, um, he was at least faithful to the Lord, just not a very good leader, uh, military leader. None of these kings are faithful. Does God cast them off? When the northern kingdom's taken away and the southern kingdom is beginning to decline, God sends the prophet Isaiah and he says this in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his wicked he sh uh, lips he shall kill the wicked, bringing justice, do justice. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. At that point, the southern kingdom said, we still have hope. We, oh, this king's going to come. We just have to hold on a little bit longer. And day turns into year, turns into decade, turns into another 130 years. And those kings decline. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and the Babylonians sweep in and the land vomits out the southern kingdom. And nothing. And the question left for the people of God is all we see is faithlessness in ourself. Is God done with us? And I mentioned this a couple months ago. 
right at the very end of 2 Kings, we get this amazing one paragraph. So they've been carried into slavery 37 years before that. All those other kings have been either executed or put in prison, including a king who was in the line of David named Jehoiakim, who was a bad king. He just got put in prison. Listen to these words. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, the king of Babylon, in the year that that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for, this, uh, for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. That's just a little throwaway paragraph at the end of Second Kings. Fade to black. It's done. But it's just like any movie that the hero has died, everything's a wreck, everything's in shambles, everything is hopeless, and at the very end, he's lying in the grave And the last, the very last second before it fades to black, you hear a heartbeat. Boom, boom. And that little sign there, Jehoiakim, the one in the line of David, the one in the line of Jesus, it's a little sign that God says, I'm actually not done with my people. Because my faithfulness to my people is always greater than their faithfulness to me. My faithfulness is greater than their faithlessness. And here's all I want to say, guys. Just one point of application as we go to the communion table of our faithful King Jesus. Israel, Judah, rubble, pile of rubble, smoldering ashes. In some way, the natural consequence of their sin has doubled onto them and come to bear and the land has vomited them out. It's a result of their own doing. It's a result of the brokenness of this world and what they have is a faithful king in spite of their faithlessness. In our life, we bring destruction at our own hand. Our life could be a pile of smoldering rubble or worse. We could make a mess of things or worse, some of us have. Some of us are living with the natural consequences of that reality right now, and maybe we forever will in our body in this chapter of life. Maybe it's just the weight of having, uh, living in a broken world with our own sin and the sin of other people and the long trajectory of all of that. Do you know what you have? A faithful king. God's faithfulness is always greater than our faithlessness. In fact, in our failure, God's faithful promise is highlighted. That's part of the reason we go to the communion table every single week because he's declaring to us over and over and over again, I'm not done with my people and my faithfulness supersedes their faithlessness. If you delight in that, that this table is open to you. If you're in Christ by faith, this table is open to you. I want to encourage you to come and take.